Hey guys, I just want to clear the air before I, uh, <laughs> before you hear this. Uh, there is a big gaffe I had per usual, but this one's huge where I said, Chuck, it's not like you could hit. And then I went on something else. What I meant to say was, it's not like you hit a lot of home runs. The dude absolutely could hit. He hit 300 for over a decade, basically in pro ball. So let's just get that out of there. And I hope you enjoy the episode. It was a lot of fun. And we look forward to the next two. Thanks. Chuck, you know, I remember my last at bat as a below average high school baseball player, <laughs> average on my best day. And even that last at bat was difficult for me, man. But champ, what was it like on your last at bat knowing that through a crazy career, high school to college to pro, that this is the last time you were going to put on a helmet and take that donut off the lumber? I didn't realize I wasn't going to play the last game of the season the next, the following day. So it was, I think it was like a pinch hit or I'd been playing. I can't remember. I think it was like a pinch hit late in the game uh, with the Royals against Cleveland in Cleveland. And I popped up to the catcher, dude. Fucking sucked. A pop-up <laughs> to the catcher is worse than fucking striking out. Seriously. <laughs> Horrible. And that turned out to be my last major league at bat. Thanks a lot, Tony Pena. Nice manager. But it wouldn't be right if we didn't bring huge Yankees fan, state champion, city champion, and national champion, the head coach of LSU football, Coach Ed Ogeron. Testies. that boarding school I went to, my best friend and roommate was probably one of the fastest people you'll ever see in your life. He was absolutely a track superstar, world-class speed, ran the fastest 100 meter you've ever seen in the pen relays and the 4x1, the 4x4, and individually, he's the fastest human being I have ever seen. Could have ran track anywhere if he wanted to in college, but he didn't. 
And one of the last races he ever ran right in front of me as I was watching from the top, as he's about to cross the finish line in the four by one, he drops the baton. Drops the baton and that actually made them forfeit that event and they lost districts for the first time in almost 10 years. And only people remember that. They don't remember how he racked up gold medal after gold medal after gold medal, wins, wins, wins. They just remember that, which is pathetic. You see, that's what I'm talking about with my boy Knobloch. We only remember the yips and maybe some off-the-field stuff. But you don't remember just how crazy of a career this guy had. And there's a story behind everything. And I plan on telling the whole story page by page, chapter by chapter. Welcome to the Sports Antidote, episode number 156. I'm your host, the North Korean Santa. You don't know Knobloch. Sports Antidote, episode number 156. I'm your host, the North Korean Santa. You don't know Knobloch. Appropriate intro music. As T.I. says, you don't know him. I don't think you know my boy Knobloch, but we're going to get to know him. I've been kind of getting to know him over the last couple weeks through a friend of a friend. I don't know anybody, but I guess I know people who know people, which is just as good as knowing people, right? Uh, This is going to be a great episode. We've been waiting for this one for a long time. I've prepped accordingly, done my homework, uh, and it's just incredible to have a guy that, you know, two-time silver slugger, Golden Glove recipient, uh, four-time All-Star, AL Rookie of the Year, four-time World Series champion. And those clips you just heard, those home runs were all in in World Series and ALCS, and they were big. These weren't ones that made it six-run games or made a blowout big or tried to start a cut. These are ones that were going ahead or tying baseball games in the latter part, um, you know, deep in the playoffs. And and, uh, this guy was a huge, huge reason the Yankees were able to, to do what they did and almost win four in a row if it wasn't for the, for the Arizona, uh, for those um, Diamondbacks. But, you know, it's just a, I used to like try to mod my game after this guy, except I, I sucked. But Chuck reminded me that, you know, you, can, you don't need to be big to be effective. You know, although I wasn't any good, I was good at getting on base. And as my coach, high school, he's the AD at the school, he's listening to this right now. One thing you can say about me, I can certainly steal his bases. 72 for 72 in three years, that was free. I always throw that in there like once every three months, you know what I'm saying? But Knobloch was one of the best. Let me just preface, I was terrible. (laughs) I just bust my ass to be average. Um, But, you know, Knobloch worked his ass off and and be one of the better players in Major League Baseball that no one really talked about. Almost career 300 hitter over the course of over a decade in the bigs. Um, Multiple accolades. I mean, it's just... It's kind of like, you know, little guys for the Astros, you know, Altuve, Bregman, they have power, but they're not the biggest guys, but they both respectively are like the MVPs in their own right. Bregman should have won it last year. The fact that he went to Mike Trout, don't even get me started on that. That is absolute blasphemy that you give the MVP to a last place team to a guy that missed a third of the season. You're really cucking me right there, especially because I bet that with the drunk neighbor we got robbed, bro. The Drunk Neighbor will be joining us for one of these, my trusty co-host. We just want to see how the first one went. Uh, really excited to have Chuck on. Uh, and, um, you know, although we have, it, we have a, a syllabus, I'm pretty sure we're going to run off that. And I'm ready to deviate in any way we can. I'm pretty good at this. I don't do it for a living. But 
I am a salesman, so normally when I get in front of a decision maker, I'm asking questions and we are starting from 10,000 feet and getting to ground level and that is exactly what we plan to do here. There are three chapters this man's life, excuse me, three. there's more chapters to his life than three. Three chapters to this podcast about his life. One, if you didn't know, if you're just tuning in, it's going to be his growing up under a legendary Houston coach uh, at Bel Air, uh, one of the most respected coaches in the city, nearly the state. Multiple championships, hundreds and hundreds of wins. What it's like playing under a coach like that. That's your dad coming out of high school, going to Texas A&M, winning a ludicrous amount of games, 58 games one year. They started off 30-0 or something crazy. And then, of course, they got snake bit by LSU. And then, uh, and then just after that, you know, his his time, you know, getting drafted, playing in the in, in the minors, and then, you know, that's that's a whole chapter in itself. And then the next one would be him playing for the Twins, winning a World Series, his first year at 22. When I was 22, I was serving beer to somebody, man. This dude's over here winning AL MVP, winning a World Series. You kidding me? Kirby Puckett and them beating the Braves in Game Seven because of something that. Which you'll hear, he had a big part of that one too as a kid. Are you kidding? And then the third chapter will be probably the one everybody wants to hear. Getting traded to the Yankees before the season started in February uh, of 98. And then uh, doing what he did over there. And then kind of his career taking a weird turn. And he ended up in Kansas City. And then what's happened after that? We may even do four. I may even have to break it into four. Because what happened after baseball is just ridiculous. And this whole thing is going to revolve around his, his dad. And There's just so much we don't know. But yet the media just puts shit out there. We're like, oh, yeah, it's just it's absurd. There's fake news in sports media, too. Just look how they protect LeBron James. Idiot. IQ of 42. Don't even get me started on LeBron James. I'm sorry. But anyway, without further ado, you're not here to hear me. Well, you might be. But more than likely, the ludicrous amount of people probably listening to this one will be here uh, to listen to the champ, my boy Chuck Knobloch. So with that being, with that being said, let's get it going. What's going on, champ? Not much. How you doing? Doing good, brother. Uh, so before we uh, really get going here, man, I just want to, before we get into this, uh, I just want to thank you for coming on the Sports Antidote. Man, I know you're a, you know, a busy dude. It's not every day we get a guy of your caliber uh, to come on here, especially for a three-part series. So before we even begin, I just want to say thank you in advance. No problem. North Korean, whatever you are. North Korean, whatever I am. I'll take that. They call me the North Korean Santa, but you know that's because I'm still. Oh, that's right, okay. Santa. I couldn't couldn't remember the Santa part. My bad. <laughs> it's okay, dude. I'm a child at heart. It's fine. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Chuck, man. I mean, you know, growing up, you know, me growing up, you know, I, I tried. Basically, a guy like you was like an idol for me. You know, a guy that wasn't his biggest guy. You know, five eight, one eighty, a guy that could steal bases, couldn't really hit. Uh, had power when he had to hit home runs, but could play multiple positions. And I try to do that, but I couldn't do any of that because I was absolutely trash. Uh, but at the same time, no, I still try to build my model around you, especially stealing bases and all these things that you did so well. And uh, I remember the things you did great. And then, of course, there's a lot of you know people out there that remember the other stuff. And we'll get into that as we you know move forward, which I think is is jack bullshit, but whatnot. But you know what have you? But Chuck, man, I mean, you know. The part to your story, uh, the three parts, is really could do it in one. I mean, you know, you, we'll talk about what happened in your upbringing in part one, and then, you know, your whole twins, the whole experience of you being the AL MVP at 22 years old. When I was 22 years old, I was busting tables. Uh, I wasn't the AL MVP. You win a World Series. And the next thing you know, a few years later, you were in New York. You won in three more World Series. God knows how many stories you know. God knows what's in that track. I have no idea. We're going to find out. Uh, God willing. 
But for part one, man, you know, just to get it going, I just want to talk about a lot of things about you. You know, as we talk about, I'm not going to talk much here. You're going to do most of the talking, but I just want to know, let you know, as we spoke initially, this, I kind of want this to run like, you know, for the love of the game, you know, that movie with, uh, you know, uh, Billy Chappell, my boy, you know, pitching where it goes in and out of his life, but it revolves around his life. Uh, it's a baseball movie about someone's life. So I want this to be a podcast about a baseball guy like you, but around your life, because I think you've got a shit take by most media. And I think you misunderstood as a whole as I've gotten to know you. Uh, and I think that a lot of people kind of want to know more about you. And I think this is going to be a great platform for you to uh, to talk about that. So, you know, with that being said, man, I mean, I'm, I know I had just really just barfed on you for three minutes there, but I had to get that out. <laughs> Sorry, but it had, had to be said, uh, had to be said. But, man, just, you know, talk to me about your upbringing. I mean, before, before uh, you know, you go ahead here. You know, your dad is a legendary coach, legendary coach in Houston, Texas. And even when I moved to Houston in 2009, I knew who your dad was before I even over there at Bel Air with just this ludicrous record of wins and championships. And could we just start there? Like, what was your dad's influence on your life early in baseball? Let's just start there and we'll tree it up. Early in baseball. Well, early on, like he missed a lot of my games because he was coaching Bel Air. He was coaching the high school guys when we were playing Little League and stuff like that. So, um, but he'd play catch with me in the backyard. I used to pitch when I was younger. And he and we had, he built a little pitcher's mound in the backyard, and I'd throw to him uh, and whatnot. But um, when I got older, as I progressed in baseball, I mean, I was always one of the best guys on the team, not to be conceited or anything, but just keeping it real. Uh, so I was good at it. I was good at base. Any anybody's gonna want to do what they're good at, right? So, um, and I had plenty of people telling me, you know, what the odds are of making the big leagues? You know, one in eight million or whatever it is. And um, I'm like, okay, well, I'll be that one. But uh, anyway, my dad, you know, I really got to know him. I guess on our rides to school every day because you know we didn't have a lot of money, so I didn't have a car even when I turned 16. So. I used to ride to school with him every day um, back. And then after practice or after games was a nightmare. I'd be like, mom, can I ride with you? You know, and it never happened. He'd be like, get in the car. But um, yeah, our rides to school were not many words were said, if any, a lot of, a lot of, I wasn't like I was sleeping. I was just sitting there uh, and he wouldn't say too much, but uh, baseball wise, when I got to high school, that's where you get, close to the next level where it's college or pro ball or whatever. So, um, and I read a story about Ozzie Smith taking like 300 ground balls a day. So I had to do it. So I would do it like one, count them out, one, two, three. So he would be hitting them to me too. So um, I don't know what it was, two or 300, something like that. But <clears throat> so he worked with me a lot, you know, and he was hardcore on me. And he was a hardcore uh, person. Um he didn't really fuck around too much. Well, he told me before I made the varsity my sophomore year, uh, he told me, he said, if you step out of line one inch and if I don't kick your ass in front of everybody, they're going to take advantage of me because I let you step out of line in one inch. I'm like, I got it. Yes, sir. You know? And uh, anyway, but he had a big influence on my baseball career. That's for sure. You actually played junior varsity? Actually, was a freshman on the sophomore team. Yeah. 
Oh, I've, I don't know how that works because that's like five. Texas, what, was it like seventeen A or what? What is it there? Like <laughs> we were eighteen. We were eighteen five A, which is now at the district of change, but now it's six A. So we would have been a six A school if it was six A back then. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, it's a monster school. I mean, your dad, 598 wins, 225, 598 wins, four state championships. Look, I don't want to treat back. That that is insane. That's absurd. Um, I've had friends that played for their dad that are coaches, but not for ones that are actual, like, legends. And not to, you know, kiss your ass or kiss the ring. Your dad is a legend in Houston, and most people that live there like I did would know that. Um, You know, what was – not to you know circle fullback but like was it really i mean was he hard he had to be harder on you then right like you said like you know if he was easy on you then then the other the other inmates so to speak would think that he was being soft right i mean oh so yeah did he yeah he, whip on that ass even harder oh yeah no he didn't let me get out of line at all he set me straight one summer league game my buddy was playing for sharpstown we were buddies and he was pitching and i got a hit off him or whatever and i was on first base and he kept throwing over and kept giving me looks. I was like, what the fuck? You want to go right here, man? And <laughs> before I knew it, my dad, who, who he he kept the uh, he kept scoring to the announcement for the summer league up in the press box, man. He was down on the field. He jerked me by my rope chain, broke my rope chain. Did you greenhorn? I'm like, I had to ask somebody what a greenhorn was. You know, like, I guess an asshole. He goes, what are you doing? You know, so he got on. I mean, he would, he would, he would get on me. Um that's just who he was. You know, I guess he, you know, looking back on it, he cared. You know, he wanted me to be the best I could be and not do anything stupid, I guess. But um, anyway, um, yeah. Well, you know, as far as, you know, as far as that goes, before we move on here, I'm just curious. You said that you knew you were going to be that, you know, all, you said that only so many people play pro ball and you said you're going to be one of those people. Uh, and you were right, which we'll get into in, in this three-part series, particularly your first-round draft pick and then AL <laughs> Rookie of the Year, so that worked out. But uh, when did you know? Did you know in your high school career? And please speak brashly. No one gives a motherfucker right now. Just say whatever you want. No one cares. Did you know in your high school career, like, oh, yeah, I, this is it? Like maybe your sophomore year? So you, st- you started varsity your sophomore year, correct? Yeah. So did you kind of know then that you're like, yeah, I could probably do this professionally or no? Um, no, I knew I was good. I mean, I, my, my goal the whole long, my, my goal from when I was four or five years old was to be in the big leagues, you know, to play in the big leagues, to play baseball. Um, and, you know, luckily for me, it worked out. But, yeah, you, like I said, when you get older and older, you know, I started to notice it in college, you know, because – you know, high school is high school and not knock anybody that just average in high school, but they were good. But when you get to college, especially division one college, like A&M, you know, everybody there is the best player on their team, you know, and you, you separate yourself. There was a continual separation, you know, just like in the big leagues, you're an all-star or you're a superstar, you know, you take it to the next level if you're a superstar. Um, so, you know, I separated myself in high school from from guys. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I broke my leg my senior year, the second game, second or third game of the season. Um, so, 
That was actually we'll the first that. time I saw my dad cry. Was in the was in the uh, doctor's office when he put the the X ray up and said, "Yeah, you broke your tibia." I'm like, "Oh man!" He started crying. I lost it, but um, yeah. So I missed my senior year, um, which I was looking forward to. I mean, I probably think the path would have changed if I didn't break my leg. If I didn't break my leg, I probably would have signed. The Phillies were on me high. They were big on me. They still ended up drafting me in the 18th round, even with a broken leg. But I probably would have been – I think they took Roderick Robertson in the first round, Andre Robertson's son, who a lot of Yankee fans know Andre Robertson, shortstop. But um, um, I probably would have been taken maybe in the first round, I don't know, out of high school. But I probably would have gone signed pro. So, anyway, I got to go to college, and you can't have those years back. I, know, I wouldn't change a thing, you know, even the broken leg and all the heart – heartache it caused me and my dad and my mom um but you know things happen for a reason i guess no they do chuck and look man i'm not trying to i'm not trying to go around what you're saying i just want to once again i want to dial it back um look chance tell me about what it's like to be your junior year you're basically an all-american you break your leg like you said you sit out your senior year and you guys win a state championship. Yeah. And then good. your dad retires. And then he retires. Like that, right? That's a podcast in itself. So yeah. Just so I can get this straight for everyone listening. The heir apparent to the throne of the Knobloch family here breaks his leg and my boy Chuck here. And then he goes up there, has to watch his team win a championship, which I don't even know how that feels. The only championship I've won was with my coach who is listening to this right now. Who's still that coach of my high school team. He's the AD now. We won a, um, a men's league one time. I finally won a championship. Woohoo! Faith, other confetti, uh, alert the media. But at the same time, though, Chuck, I mean, what was it like to sit there on the bench? I'm not trying to grind you here, but to watch your team win without you was that like? What was that like? I mean, I think a lot of people want to know that you're a broken. You have a broken leg. They win without you. Obviously, it's not like you would have been way better had you been there. But what was it like to be on a team? You know, kind of like that. First of all, I drank a lot. <laughs> After I broke my leg, I drank a lot. There's a nice place called Papacitos down here that would serve you if you were 12. You know, but uh, <laughs> I mean, that's back in the 80s. A lot of things have changed since then. Good old days. But yeah, it was tough uh, at first. You know, I would go to the games. I didn't sit in the dugout. You know, I'd sit in the stands because I was hammered. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh but yeah, going to Austin where the state championship is uh, and the capital where UT is playing on UT's field, you know, was like a big thing. And I just been there my, you know, for my visit in the fall. And there I'm back, you know, in the spring with a broken leg. Um, yeah, it was tough. And the guy, you know, I, I still see him. I saw him last time Beller made the playoffs been a few years well not made the playoffs the last couple of years with the exception of this year with no season but Billy Hatfield and he was you thought you're small and I'm small he was literally probably 5'4 five, 5'5 five, five. and he set the walks uh, record at Bel Air I think he had 48 walks in probably 26 games you know and nobody could throw to him he was tiny but he played shortstop for, for me that year he replaced me which is unbelievable. Everybody talks about that, but um, yeah. So it, it was exciting to win, but I mean, obviously you're, you're missing a piece of it. You're not getting to participate. So it was tough. You know, it was tough. So 
I mean, I imagine it would be. And then let's talk about kind of your dad again. So I know this is going to be the, the, the cyclical theme of this whole thing, uh, or circular, if you will. But I mean, so your dad retires after you win a championship that you did not play in. Am I correct here? Yeah. And what's interesting is my brother in 78, when he was a senior, they won in 78 as well. So, <laughs> yeah, kind of crazy. We both won our senior year him getting to play and me not, but um, yeah, that was his plan all along. As I found out afterwards that he was trying to get through me and uh, get me through my senior year. And then he could go watch me play where I was going to play. And he took, he took a stadium job like here is different in the city of Houston. There's these main complexes for each district, you know, Butler, which the field is named Knobloch field now baseball field, but there's Butler, you know, air, like stadiums, you know, they got the football stadium, the basketball stadium, and the baseball stadium where all the district games are played. You don't play at your, you know, this is inner city. I'm talking about Houston, not not inner inner city, but like the city of Houston. There's so many surrounding areas now. As you know, you've been here a lot. Um, but, um, you know, these teams that are out, like in Katy and Fort Bend and stuff like that, out, you know, 20 miles from downtown Houston or 30 miles they got their own stadiums and fields and it's crazy the amount of land they have. But anyway, um, I don't know where I was going with this, but um, he, Oh, he took a, he took a stadium director's job at Del Mar, which is another one, another complex where they had the basketball, the baseball, the football field, football stadium for the district games. So um, he, that was the way of he built, built up, I think his retirement, like doing that after, I mean, he was at Bel Air for 25 years. And he coached at, like, uh, or he was a PE instructor, some at Hartman Middle School, I think, or junior high back then, but before he went to Bel Air in 62, I think. Um, but, yeah, he was at Bel Air for 25 years, and then he he did the Del Mar, you know, stadium supervisor where he made sure shit got run right, you know, games got off on time and stuff like that. But So he did that probably for another, I want to say, I don't know, four or five years maybe, but he could take off and go and see me play whenever he wanted to. Um, so, but yeah, I didn't know that was his plan all along to get me through my senior year. And, you know, the culmination of that was watching me fucking walk around on uh, crutches the whole year. So hmm. didn't really work out like the way we wanted it to, but you know, shit happens. But um, yeah, my dad means a lot to me. Still does. It's hard to talk about him at times for me. Um, you know, without breaking down, but, um, yeah, he was a great, great man. And he, he's well-respected even by, uh, the little kids that took PE from him, you know, like, Oh, your dad, you meet these girls in class. Like, Oh, your dad's so nice. He's such a, he's so cool. Everybody loves to push my block. He's so nice. I'm like, well, you don't know the guy that I know then he's a hard ass on me, you know, but he's, he, you know, I put my credit card down in some places like, Oh, Knobloch. Oh yeah, are you any relation to Raynaud Block, the coach at Bel Air? Yeah, yeah, I am. I mean, shit happens, you know. Like my dad is pretty like well known down here uh, for baseball and throughout the state of Texas, really. Yeah, no, and you actually just re uh, you've actually just re uh, re up the the whole thing here. You don't know Knob Block, <laughs> so exactly you know, once again, yeah. So that, that, that tends to work. And you know, what's funny is that when I first moved to Houston in 2009, um, 
this is the year that the Saints would win the Super Bowl, uh, which I, we will get into your um, other professional. You know, I know you're a big Houston fan and everything. I'm a huge Saints fan. But, uh, you know, I watched the Saints uh, win the NFC Championship in uh, Houston the year that happened. And then uh, but before that, I had went to a baseball game in Bel Air and saw that memorial your dad has. And I put two and two together. And I was like, oh, I guess Chuck's dad. I don't even know you're from Houston. Yeah, how would I know? You know, yeah. I just knew I just liked the way you played ball. So, but yeah, that is incredible, man. And I, I think that's awesome. And, 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 you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of this, you know, as we move on here, but like, I mean, was it, so let's, okay. So you kind of predicated the moving on at that point here. So we'll do a smooth transition. You see that Chuck? How about a transition here? Great transition, bud. No, man, I'm just kidding. So, I mean, like if you're going to Texas A&M at this point, is this actually one of the things in my head before I talked to you was like, was this like a family legacy? I mean, was there a chance you go to Texas? Was there a chance you go to Texas Tech? Was well, LSU looking at you? That's you a were great a question. Superstar. That's a great question because I guess since I missed my senior year, not too many people came after me from out of state because my whole – I mean, growing up, it was Florida State, LSU, you know, stuff like that where, you know, as it turns out, you had great colleges and baseball schools in Texas as well. Texas, Florida, and California are the best schools to go to if you can. But, um, yeah, I actually verbally committed to – to Texas after my visit and stuff like that. I verbally committed and then changed it, you know, um, to a and I had a lot of influence by a guy named Butch Gooseman. He played for my dad in the, in the early six or late sixties. And then my dad, like he owed his life to my dad. My dad got him the scholarship to A&M. So he's a big Aggie. He still is. And once an Aggie, always an Aggie. But, um, so he, he got in my ear a lot in that hospital bed and, you know, Mark Johnson, uh, the head coach of A&M at the time, he came and visited me. And I basically changed up and decided to go to A&M uh, instead of Texas. I thought it would fit my style a lot better um, than playing Gus Ball. But um, anyway, uh, yeah. Ooh. So I actually did commit to Texas verbally and then ended up changing it to A&M. So, Chuck, can you get into real quick what you just said real quick? We have to know that. What do you mean it was better for you, a better fit as far as what, A&M? Well, I was going to say, and this is like preposterous because I did it in the, all the way to the big league. This is how I got on base. and But I worked the pitcher. You know, I would take like 1-0 fastball down the middle or 2-0 fastballs. I didn't swing until I set the guy up. You know, in the big leagues, you learn to set people up and get that 3-1 cookie when they think you're taking to get on walk. Um, <laughs> but uh, but that's what Texas would do. I mean, I mean, Gus would have, like, guys take 3-2 pitches, you know. I mean, so he was really controlling of the game. I've been very successful, obviously, thousands of wins in champ- national championships. But I just thought at the time, like, do I really want to go there and, like, have to take 1-0 or 2-0 in college? Um, you know, and I think I would have thrived there. Maybe who knows, you know, you never know if you, if you change like different directions in your life, if you go back, you never know what's going to happen. So like I said, everything happens for a reason. You know, it turned out me and Terry Taylor from Waltrip here in Houston. And then John Byington from, um, well, not Pearland, but Baytown, Baytown Lee, 
the three of us going there were huge signs for AM as it turned out. And we really thought we shifted we shifted some of the power over to AM as far as baseball like away from Texas, U T. And um, we actually did, you know, and that, you know, culminated our junior year when we beat them. Um, I think we might have swept them. I know we beat them the last two games. We beat them two out of three, at least. Might Maybe swept them, I forget. But, you know, that year, as we talked about prior to this, you know, we didn't lose too many games. I mean, we were 50, 55 and five going into the, you know, the regionals. So, if Texas beat us, I don't know. I don't remember, but I think we might have swept them that year. You guys started off the season thirty and zero. Yeah, uh, which is ridiculous. And I love how you. I love how you keep jumping ahead because it means you're you're right here with me. But I got to rate it back because <laughs> there's some questions I have to ask prior to that happening, which is an incredible season. But um, I mean, did you? I mean, you didn't know at the time. Mark Johnson now, right now, is I mean, he's a thousand plus coach. Um, he retired in 2005 from A&M. Uh, he stepped away. Uh, I mean, did you know that Tom he was going to be that that great of a coach? Because he pretty much was a good skipper for the most part. Yeah. He or was, was he kind of hard-ass on you, or what was that like? Because he was early in his career when you came there. Yeah, no, yeah. It was only maybe his second or third or fourth year, something like that, maybe fifth at the most. Um, but he wasn't really a hard-ass, you know, he – he was a big Christian guy. He didn't cuss or anything. And you had me, Byington, and Taylor, you know, striking out or making it out, coming back to the dugout, going, fuck this shit. And, you know, like, fuck. <laughs> they end up putting in the in the runway up to our, you know, out of the dugout, like there's a door, big steel door you had to go through to get up to our clubhouse. And you run up, locker room, I guess, at the time, but run up this step, and there was a big dummy at the end, and you hit it, tackle that shit, beat it up, you know, how mad we used to get. Um, but, uh, yeah, he wasn't he wasn't too hard, you know. He was, you know, he stuck to his beliefs and and um, you know he turned out to be an awesome guy, you know, in my life. Every time I see him, I, we had a we had our thirty year reunion of eighty nine, uh, the eighty nine team that we're talking about, the good team that we ended up being fifty eight and seven because LSU, 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 your asses beat us um, twice on the last day of the regionals to go to the World Series. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was our 30th reunion. We were there November 1st and 2nd of 2019, like six months ago, I guess. And, um, five months ago, um, and had a great time. It was good seeing him. I hadn't seen him in a while. Every now and then he'll reach out to me and catch me and, and stuff like that. But he was overall a good guy. Like, like I said, a great, he was a great practice coach. I mean, he had it down to the minute before guys did that in college. I know that's a big thing now you hear about the better coaches have like these crazy insane practices, very competitive practices. And, you know, that's kind of passed me by. I don't even, can't even wrap my brain around that. But, um, uh, Mark Johnson was similar to my dad because he was a big fundamental guy. My dad was really into fundamentals, playing the game the right way and, and being in the right spot at the right time and, and backing up and, and things like that. So Mark Johnson was the same way that was similar to my dad. Um, in that respect for as far as the coach was, but like I said, a great practice coach, um, pretty good game coach, but I wouldn't go all the way with that. But, um, you know, he got the talent in there. We, we, we changed a and up. I mean, now you go up to a and now it's just dripping with money. Like 
donors and sponsors. It's it's changed so much in 30 years since I was there. Um, I mean, I've been back a few times and saw the change, but now it's just like crazy. I mean, we had Olsen Field. Now it's Olsen Park at Bluebell Field or Bluebell Olsen Field at Bluebell Park or whatever. Bluebell. I mean, I don't know if you have ice cream in Louisiana, but I'm sure you have Bluebell <laughs> in your lifetime. But um, anyway, um, yeah, good man, though. Real good man. Good family man. I, I ran into a couple of – or two of his – both of his sons were coaching a select team when I had my – Knobloch baseball team a few years ago and ran into them. We didn't play them, but I ran into them at the same tournament. It was good catching up with them, um, Ronnie and Brian Johnson. So, um, good, good family. Linda, the wife, too. Good, fam- good family. Let's go, cool, man. I mean, I'm all about, you know, I'm not against AM, as you'll meet. Hopefully, the drunk neighbor, my co host, not a big fan of AM, but yet a huge fan of the Houston Astros, which you are as well. So you guys will be able to break bread on that. Um, Before we break up this first segment, I have to ask you, um, you know, we talked about, you know, you know, the whole A&M, you know, side of things and everything, but uh, what, as far as being on that A&M team, winning all those games, how weird was it? as you guys technically were the best college team of all times at the time to get derailed. I mean, in one minute or two, what was it like when your season ended there? And I'm not saying that because I'm an LSU fan. I'm saying that because you guys had an epic baseball team and it ended and it probably shouldn't have. Our starting nine, all the, all the starters that year got drafted. And I'm pretty sure mostly everybody signed whether they were juniors or seniors or whatever. But most of our team was juniors. And I don't know, one or two sophomores maybe that contributed a little bit. But we had an all-junior team, which is like your go year, you know. Um, but it's amazing. Like like I said, all nine starters got drafted and either played a little bit or for a little bit. And Byington was probably the, the guy that made it the furthest other than myself. He got, I think, touched AAA with the Brewers. Um back in his day, but, um, yeah, I mean, talk about, I mean, you look back on it, they had, as it turned out, they had four or five big league pitchers, Ben McDonald, Kurt Lisconic, Russ Springer, Paul Bird, and I can't remember the other one, but there was five. I think, I think Ben, ben I know. McDonald's really slammed you guys, right? Yeah, I mean, that's what, I mean, Big, big Ben pitched the first game. They, they, they were in the loser's bracket. I don't I forget who beat him. But it's interesting because that regional, you know, Mark Johnson's whole goal was to hold, hold a regional. Like that's before the super regional. Like you played the regionals and you were going to the, you won the regional, you're going to the World Series. Now it's different with a different for, uh, you know, different format. But, um, you know, they, they were in the loser bracket. So they had beat us twice um, to go to the World Series. They had to beat us twice because we were three and oh, and they were, I guess, maybe two and one. And, uh, Big Ben starts and shoves it up our ass, basically, um, the first game. He actually goes into left field. They didn't want to take him out of the game. So he goes into left field when some other pitcher comes in. I forget who came in, Lisconic or somebody. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, they might have brought him back in, but I don't know if they did to finish the game. I can't remember, but I know he was in left field, playing left field, so they could bring him back to pitch um, if they wanted, if they needed him. But 
that was insane. I can't remember the scores. And then, and then the night game that night, um, our best pitcher was 14. No, he was pitching against whoever started for them. It didn't matter. Springer, Bird, Lisconic, they all pitched that, that, that second game. Um, Keith Osick was actually the shortstop and he made it to the big leagues as a catcher. Go figure that. He was a small guy like me too, probably a couple more inches on me, but on the smaller side, but, um, Anyway, we're up like four, four, three or three, two or something late in the game, like eighth inning, maybe bottom of the eighth or whatever, and or top of the eighth. They were visitors that second game, but this guy hadn't batted since like March, and this is like the end of May. So go figure, like March, April, May, like three months. The guy hadn't even taken a swing in a live game, and he hits a freaking double off the right center field wall to score like two guys. It was it was incredible how they they pulled it out on us and then you know like I guess Bird or Lestonic stuck it up our ass you know to finish the game the next inning and a half but um yeah it was pretty it was disappointing like I like I went back to the regional thing and Johnson wanted to host so bad and how could they not give us a a regional we were the best team in you know college ball number one the whole year and um Texas we knew Texas would get one they always used to get their regionals there and I was saying to guys, like, look, we're going to get LSU and Ben McDonald come to our regional if we host. If we host in Austin, if Texas hosts, we're going to get somebody that's really good. Not that we were scared of LSU or whatever, but still. Arkansas that year, it was um, – I think it was like – I think Arkansas finished third in the conference, I think, out of Texas and, and ourselves. And they went up to Connecticut and played uh, in the regional and ended up making it to the World Series. Texas make it to the World Series and the best team in the conference, we lost because we hosted a regional. We would have probably been up in Connecticut other than Arkansas. But anyway, that's neither here or there. That was just my opinion at the time. Everybody wanted to host. Oh, no, let's host a regional. I go, no, man, we don't need to. Let's go somewhere. Kick ass somewhere else and win it. And um, it didn't turn out that way. But uh, so, yeah, it was pretty devastating. I remember walking off the field just clapping my hands like at the fans, you know, just – devastated like what just hit us you know college is over basically well i mean you know i mean college is over for you at that point and that's actually an amazing story thank you for that that kind of sets up a lot because there's a lot of a&m fans that are you know huge fans of yours and i have a lot of a&m fans that are friends of mine so of course but uh let's get into um before we get out of the Texas A&M thing or, you know, whatever, can we talk about, uh, let's see, this, uh, the Cape League, right? Didn't you have a, Cape Cod. A, you know, Frank Thomas, Mo Vaughn, you had a little. Oh, yeah, there was a, there was a lot of, of, of big leaguers, former, I mean, prior to, like, pre-big league guys that were in that league that year. I mean, that's some stud. Mo Vaughn uh, was our first baseman on our team. The Wareham Gateman. And Big Mo. He called me Charlie. He even called me Charlie in the big leagues when he saw me. Hey, Charlie. Hey, Charlie. Um, <laughs> hopefully, well, this guy passed away, Mr. Uh, um, Mr. Wild, John Wild. He, he like, invented, like, um, before all this, you know, analytics came out. But he, he invented um, the Stats, Stats, Inc. You know, he came up with that. And all the big leagues used it and all that. Stats, Inc. He was big time. But he was our, he was our owner of the Wareham Gateman. And tell you a couple of stories about Mo. Mo 
it was the first time me meeting him and we ended up being roommates. Um, and, um, we were with this widowed guy. We were supposed to cut his grass instead of paying him money. Cause we worked, you know, during the, during, well, we were supposed to work me and Mo didn't do a damn thing because Mo came up with a good idea. Like he, they gave us the job of passing out our schedule to different like restaurants and stuff like that, liquor stores or whatever. And they, people could pick up our pamphlet schedule. Well, Mo has them all in his car because he's from oh somewhere in Connecticut. He was from, so he drove up or drove uh, to the Cape to wear them to. So we had a car, and he put them all in a box, like thousands of them. And we're riding down the road going home because we live just outside of uh, uh, Wareham. Uh, man, I can't think of the town. Oh man, kill me. Um, I hadn't thought about it in so long, but. Uh, so he goes, he starts to pull over to this liquor store and we go behind it and there's a dumpster. I said, what are we doing? Well, he goes, I got this, Charlie, I got this. So he gets out and starts throwing all the schedules in the dumpster. <laughs> he goes, we ain't working, we ain't passing <laughs> this shit out, man. So, um, God bless you, Mo, or any Mo Vaughn fans that are listening to me, man, but this was funny shit. But, um, so we go to our first meeting, like after one practice, our first meeting with John Wild, he has checked like he needs to find out how many hours we work. And I looked at Mo. He start guys are like going oh thirty something out thirty hours, twenty five hours, whatever. Guys painted houses and worked for the sewer system. They everybody had a job, and you're supposed to you know contribute to the owner of the house you stayed at. But this guy, <laughs> you know, so back to John. Uh, I mean, uh, I can't even remember the guy that we stayed with, but. He goes, just cut my grass and we'll be good. You don't have to owe me anything. So you think me and Mo cut his grass one time? Hell no. But I had a um, – Tabor Academy was down the road, and I had a job there. I did, like, say softball and baseball part of this camp, and there's international kids. It was from all over. And most of them were there for sailing, you know, um, on the Cape. But anyway, I know I'm jumping around, so hopefully everybody can put this together. But – so me and Mo, or my, my getting at, I'll get back to the schedule story. Me and Mo didn't eat. I mean, we didn't cut his grass one time. And I, I mean, I, I guess I learned a lot from Mo. But um, so we didn't cut his grass one time. We'd sneak and eat his Pepperidge Farm, like cookies and shit. And I know he'd get <laughs> mad at us. He never said anything to us. But um, anyway, uh, so going back to John Wild meeting with us, the owner, to figure out our hours, how much he owed us. And Mo, I looked at Mo, he's, and luckily we were kneeling next to each other. He goes, I got this, Charlie. I said, I know you do, Mo. I don't know what you're going to say, but he goes, I got this. Just be quiet. He goes, Mo, Chuck, hours? Mo's like 40 each. 40 hours each. Mike, <laughs> Mo, we're robbing this guy, man. We didn't do shit. We threw this fucking schedule away. <laughs> you know, man, we gave a couple, there's a big pizza, a big pizza uh, place uh in the middle of town that we went to in a gumbo place. I mean, a gumbo shit, a chowder place um, in a good chowder place too. So we went there and gave him actually, actually like a stack of schedule. That's about all we did. Um, so anybody that didn't know, I mean, everybody on our team knew we didn't do a damn thing, but um, anyway, well, I had my job at Tabor Academy. I don't know what Mo was supposed to be doing other than passing out schedules, but needless to say, we didn't pass out schedules, but I'll say one thing that, the cops in Massachusetts are hard asses, especially, I don't know if it was like this. It's probably worse now, but in 89, 88, 
summer of 88 when I was in the Cape. I mean, you couldn't really pop a beer like on the beach or or in a park. And one night we're all hanging out as a team or group of us uh, that always hung out, I guess, because we drank or whatever beers or whatever. But um, we're in this park in the middle of downtown and cops start rolling up on, they go by us and start rolling up. They're looking at us. And if I didn't learn anything other than baseball in the Cape, I learned how to run from the cops, courtesy of Mo Bond, big Mo. <laughs> <laughs> and my story is we're at this big, it was like a small park in the middle of the town and had this huge, huge oak tree. I think it was oak tree. And the cop was basically coming at us and he's going like around the tree to the right or yeah, to the right. And me and Mo are shimmying around the behind it. Like, he's like, come on, Charlie, got this. He's like patting me like a little kid. Big old guy, like, pat me on the hip. Like, come on, Charlie, I got this. Follow me. We got this. We'll get out of here. Well, sure enough, we got away from that cop, man. We got away from him. And there was another time, I didn't tell you about this, but there's another time we were on the beach late at night, and the cops started swarming us. We're like, Mo's like, get in the bushes. And I'm like, man, there's sticker birds in there. Get in the bushes. Jump in the bushes. So it come to find out they weren't after us. Like somebody had stole like somebody's sailboat or something. They thought it was us hanging out on the beach. Thought we stole it. So Mo, thank you for telling me how to run from the cops back then. It was a pleasure. But um, anyway, I don't know what's funnier, the story about going around the tree or throwing the schedules away when we first got them, when we got there. But it's all good to me, man. And Frank, Frank Thomas, Frank Thomas, that's the year. I think he had a good year that summer, and that's the year he went back to Auburn and told him he wasn't going to play football, which, you know, killed them. He's a big tight end, um, big old dude. He probably had the biggest guy in the Cape Cod League versus the smallest guy in the Cape Cod League at the All-Star Game home run hitting contest. I think I hit one home run, and it was in Orleans, which is way up on, the like, the arm of the Cape, and it was a big old field. It was, like, basically, like, a park with the, like an elementary school behind it. And chant, the fences, chant, chant. The fences oh. weren't rounded. It was like whatever the left field fence would hit the right field fence, like way like 500 feet, like away from home plate, like in a point. Well, Frank hit a few and I hit one and I ended up going up against him in a home run derby. Like it was ridiculous. Are you telling, Champ, you went up, it's, okay, but well you just said it. You went against Frank Thomas in, in a home run yeah, derby? Yeah, home run derby. I think nobody hit one on our squad, and I hit one. And Frank hit a couple, I think. It might have been three to one, maybe, something like that. But yeah. I had a shot at beating him. But I yeah, well, I find that, uh, I find that uh, you know, kind of, I find that kind of, you know, racially biased. Um, that's ridiculous. <laughs> We have the small white guy go against the biggest black guy in the home run derby. You know what? I'm a. You know what? That's. I'm not about that action. That's ridiculous. Look, man. I mean, um, before I know we're, we're running on 40 minutes here, but it's pretty funny. Chuck, tell us about real quick. I mean, that was a hilarious and amazing. You know, kind of, kind of story, and and you know, vit through to where you've been. How do you acquire a sports agent? Like when you're you were picked in the first round. You're a big deal. So uh, do you just like dispel all of like these like guys like, hey, Chuck, <laughs> like all the little guys coming at you with yarmulkes. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. But everybody coming at you and wanting to be your agent. Dude, you or, better be Jewish for saying that. You'll go down in history. I'm not. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> never mind. We'll move on. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm but it's right. There are a lot of Jewish, Jewish lawyers that are agents now. So you're not far off. 
Yeah, no. Well, my my question is like, how's that work with you? Like initially, like I mean, like like how's it work with like, you know, you're a number one pick, you're gonna be a stud, and how do you like go about like you know sequestering or you know like that whole procurement of the agent process for a twenty year old kid? Um. Well, there's the Hendricks brothers were Houston based, and they were kind of on me like from my sophomore year. You know, the word was getting around about me a little bit, you know, obviously not nationally because I was a little guy just hitting doubles and triples and stealing bases or whatever, making plays at shortstop. But, um, uh, yeah, it was basically, you know, and it wasn't really at the time they couldn't, you know, a lot of the rules have changed where, you know, the basketball guys or football guys cannot get drafted in certain spots and pull themselves back into school or somehow. But, um, back when I played, once you talked to an agent, you were supposedly done losing your eligibility. You know, if it didn't work out for somebody um, like Veritech, Jason Veritech, legend for Boston, the twins drafted him when I was there, drafted him with their first pick out of Georgia Tech, I think. I'm not mistaken. And he didn't get the money he wanted, so he went back. So obviously he didn't have an agent at the time because he would have been stuck with taking the twins offer. I think if that, if you're playing by the rules, which, you know, you rarely do, but anyway, so I basically, they kind of, they kind of pee really. I didn't really, them, it was just, um, you know, something that happened. They were, they were Houston guys. And, you know, I think at one point they had like 53 big leaguers, you know, they had Clemens, Reardon, um, uh, Guys like that. I mean, I couldn't name all the guys they had at the height. Maybe Kelly Gruner, I think. Maybe he had some Texas ties growing up. So, um, but the Hendrick brothers were were legends, I guess, as far as agents were concerned. Randy and Allen. Allen was more of the uh, the go to the general managers guys to smooth things over to start the contract talks up. And Randy, who was a lawyer, he would come in and close the deal. He was a big. I didn't really meet Randy. One of my two agents, I didn't meet him until my arbitration year. We were sitting at the arbitration table. I was like, oh, nice to meet you, man. I've had you for, been paying you for three years, and I get to meet you now because arbitration is serious. <laughs> um, so, which was something else, arbitration. Um, that's a whole other deal. But um, anyway, I only went once with the twins, and they paid dearly. But um, uh, anyway, so yeah. So I basically was just settled on them probably my junior year in high school. I was like, I mean, I didn't really give it a lot of thought. I didn't know what it entailed. I didn't know how important they were. I didn't know how not important they were as well. You know, I'll get on a story. I don't know if you want me to go there about pro ball, but you know, I'm like in the midst of my like best year, like 96. And I call to talk to Alan and they're like, Oh no, he's in, um, He's in um, south of France, like in Bordeaux or something. I'm like, what the fuck? Are you fucking kidding me? I'm busting my ass out here. And this guy's going to give me, <laughs> try to give me a contract, have me pay him for five years and and not be, not me busting my ass in the middle of the summer. It really burned me up. I don't think, I mean, that story got around a little bit, but I mean, I remember calling um, Gene. Gene, um, oh man, God, he was like under Don Fear. He was like he would run the uh, Players Association. Donald Fear was there forever, but Gene, God, I want to say 
I don't know. He was one of the little Jewish guys you're talking about running around. But he was a member of the Players Association, and he was a guy. <laughs> he was a guy that I called because I couldn't figure out, like, okay, so my brother could have done my contract the year. I, I mean, I hit three forty one that year, right? So my brother and my leading up to my rookie of the year, my second year, my third year was better. My fourth year was good. I probably would have set the league the the, the league record in doubles. When we went on strike, I had 48 doubles, and we had, like, 48 games left when we went on strike. So, and the record was, like, 62. So, I probably would have beat the doubles record, but we went on strike for better reasons, I guess. Um, But, um, so, I couldn't figure out. Like, I got a five-year contract, so you've done your job. What are you going to do for me the other four years? I'll pay you once and then be done with it. And so, I wanted to fire him. I wanted to go with the the Levine brothers. They That was the only time when I was in New York. I was actually a twin and I came to New York. He took me around to like, Oh, some soap opera set. I thought I was big time going on there. Um, but you know, I really actually thought about getting rid of the Hendrix cause I thought they were ripping me off, you know? Um, uh, but anyway, I guess I sucked it up and paid him. I didn't, I don't, I don't guess. I remember writing that check every year at the end of the year, but, um so yeah so you live and you learn and i didn't know how that worked and but anyway they turned out to be good dudes for me um i don't talk to them anymore really um but um anyway i have a lifelong relationship with the lady that was uh is still the accountant kind of still does my taxes actually that's one good thing that you know they said that you'll always have your taxes done no matter what you know as long as you're a hendrix client so she's, I've gotten to know her well since my, since I was 18, probably my senior year in high school, really, because they were on me after high school a little bit. But, like, you know, I guess I got picked, picked by them, or I don't know, I don't know how to explain it, but it really wasn't, there wasn't too many choices for me at the time um, that I knew of. You know, maybe, maybe the Hendrix brothers scared everybody off. Hell, they didn't know I was going to be anything. You know, I mean, I know they actually, you want to hear a story about the area scout. Um, I've forgotten his name now, but um, the area scout in Houston, there's a story that was told to me, like in uh, actually told to me before I made the big leagues. It was my, it was my, after my 90 year in double, am I going too much into pro ball for you? Okay. Go ahead, bro. So, um, oh, Marty, Marty something. It's coming to me. Marty something. Um, uh, anyway, uh, so it was after my instructional league. Like, I, they let me go early. I didn't, they never would let me play winter ball, but I went to instructional league after my 89 year when I signed. And then my 90 year after double A, I went down there to brush up, you know, um, well, 89, I'll tell you, 89, I went to instructional league, worked on shortstop with Ron Gardner every day, every day, every day. And the big league season in, and Wayne Twilliger, Tom Kelly, Dick Such come down, the pitching coach, infield coach, base running coach, whatever, and, and then the manager, Tom Kelly. So I do all this stuff at shortstop all like six weeks long. And the last two weeks, all I was was second base. I'm like, what the fuck? These guys don't think I, because I was butthurt, like they moved, they were going to move me to second. You know, I had that feeling they were going to move me. And I'm like, man, this sucks. 
you know, they're saying I can't play, you know, shortstop, I guess, in the big leagues. And I took a step back, and I, you know, after a few months that offseason when I got home after the structural league, I was like, well, they have Greg Gagne and Scott Leas as their next shortstop ahead of me. So maybe they're trying to do me a favor. So that year, 90, was the lockout. The the owners locked the players out. So, And I had a big league um, camp deal. Uh, this is a funny story. This is my dad. This is hardcore my dad is. So Andy, the guy that the guy that signed me, he screwed it up. He went to the top number. He went to 100 grand right off the bat, and that was the much that the Twins wanted to pay me. And which, as like last year, the 25th pick in the draft got like four million dollars. By the way, so I got 120 thousand, which was big time then, which was more money than I'd ever seen. But um, anyway, um, so so Andy McPhail has to come down and close it for this area scout. Oh, I, I'll go back to that story, but. Um, so we're sitting around the table. We agreed on 120 and my dad said, and somebody said something about like going to, uh, I said, can I go to big league camp? And he goes, well, I'll do, he goes, well, we've never done that before. Where a signee has come to camp is next year or whatever. First spring training he goes, but if you hit 285 and, and this is Andy McPhail telling the story to me after much, many years later. And, and I was sitting there and my dad goes, wait, 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 285. How about 300 if he hits 300 because I had to hit 300 enemy fellows putting 285 on my 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 first minor league season that 89 year after I signed when I went and played at Kenosha for 51 games and went to Visalia for 18 games when the shortstop broke his thumb to end my in my first like I guess my first professional season which was only 69 or 70 games long but um after I played that my junior in college um but um, anyway, so my dad, like my dad, uh, after McPhail F, I go, 300, dad, what are you doing? He goes, man, if you can't 300, you don't belong in the big league camp or whatever. If you don't, don't hit 300 in your minor league, I'm like, okay, do you just put pressure on me, dad? Okay. Thanks a lot. Anyway, I ended up hitting over 300 and I go to big league camp, but, um, shit, I got off track, man. Oh, um, so, uh, Mr. Corrigan, who was the West Coast supervisor at the time. So I never knew the twins were on me at all until I got the call, like from uh, the guy that used to call players like, hey, you're, you're drafted 25th by the Minnesota Twins. What? And I knew it was going to be a good sign when he couldn't pronounce my last name. He's like, Knob, Knoblosh or whatever. I'm like, you definitely don't know Knoblock, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, Jack, o, Jack O'Connell, he, used to, he turned out to be a good friend of mine. He was head of the Baseball Writers Association at the time. But anyway, that's why he got the, I got the call from him. But um, he was one of the nicer guys in New York, by the way. Um, uh, anyway, so my dad puts the pressure on me to hit 300 after McPhail says 285. And McPhail's like, okay, we got something here. He's telling me this years later after I was in the big leagues for a few years. He told me these stories. But anyway, Larry Corgan, the West Coast supervisor, I didn't even know it. So he's telling me we went to the best of the West tournament and played against Cal State Fullerton, Long Beach State. There were some stud like West Coast teams that I don't know how we got in that, but it was called best of the West tournament. And Tom Goodwin and Eddie Zosky was on Cal State Fullerton, who were two first round picks. I believe Goodwin was a first round pick. Um, 
I know Zoski was by Toronto. Um, he was a short. He was actually first team All American his junior year, and I was second team. So we know how that worked out. But um, anyway, so Larry Corgan's telling me in instruction league, you know, after at the end of instruction league, and he tells me again, like a few years later after my first big league seasons, and he goes. He goes, I get on the phone to Andy because I, I went off out there. I was like eight for 15, like in four games. I had two, two or three hits a game, nine for 15 or something. Made, made this crazy play where I was going to my left at shortstop and the ball took a bad hop and I grabbed it barehanded, like snatched it out of the air barehanded and got the guy out at first. It was a sick play and we've seen Ozzy Smith do it. I'm not comparing myself to Ozzy Smith, but so anyway, I went off. I had like, that was my junior or my, yeah, it was my junior year. Best of the West tournament over spring break. We always took a trip spring break. But so Larry Corgan's telling me the story where he called McPhillip. He goes, hey, hey, who's Texas area scout? Oh, Marty so-and-so. And he goes, he goes, well, who does he have from A&M? Who does he have from A&M on, the, on, the, on his list? He goes, there's nobody. He goes, are you kidding me? He goes, well, I saw this guy, this little guy just go off down here. And he goes, you're telling me he doesn't have him on, on the list to look at, to follow? He goes, you kidding me? So Corgan, like McPhail hangs up on Larry, hangs up on Larry Corgan and calls his scout back and says, "How do you not have Chuck Malbuck on your list?" Larry Corgan, our West Coast supervisor, just saw him go off out there. So that's basically how I think the Twins got on me and drafted me, which I didn't hear anything from them. I heard from a few other teams, but never heard from the Twins. So I was shocked when the Twins drafted me, or when I got the call. Not shocked the Twins drafted me, but shocked it being the Twins just out of the blue. Which come to find out, it wasn't. But that's why I tell players that I coach now, you never know when somebody's watching. Somebody's always watching. You never know. They might be there to see somebody else. Maybe he was there to see Eddie Zoski and he saw Chuck Naba. So you never know what you're going to do. You got to play hard all the time because you never know who's going to see you do what, you know, whether they're there to see you or not. You never know. So you got to go hard all the time. It's a good lesson to be learned. But anyway, it was interesting. The couple of interesting stories I had about McPhail, and the 285 300 thing with my dad another notion of how my dad thought um but and then larry corgan being the west coast supervisor who turned out to be a good friend of mine um down the road but um yeah anyway little twins maybe i touched on the twins too soon but it had a&m to do with it my junior year at a&m and i shifted from the agent talk because i don't like agents anymore but and look thanks for jumping on for uh part one i think we've got uh can we agree most of the part one out? Or is there anything else you want to say before we, you know, cross this episode? Yeah, go fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself, what? MKS. So, I'm all about that. You caught me in the first one. I was like, <laughs> yeah, okay. Hey, I got to cool. throw a little, little, well, little I mean, PG-13 like, like, or 14 or 15 in there. Shit. Yeah, I mean, that's great, R, but if you were going to pierce my heart, it would have to be really hardcore. But look, man, I appreciate you coming on here. We appreciate you having on the show. Are you cool to come back on for, for part two, which is when this whole thing really ramps up when you go to the Hell Twins? Yeah. You cool for that? Hell yeah, I'm down with that, man. You know me. You know me. They don't. Right, cool. They don't know Knobloch, but you, you're getting to know him. That was wild. That dude is nuts, and I love it. I'm pretty nuts, too, so this is a good combination. Thanks for joining episode 156 here with your boy Chuck Knobloch and the North Korean Santa. You don't know Knobloch, and that's only part one. They might even be four, but there most certainly will be three. Follow me at NKoreanSanta 
I wish Knobloch would get back on Twitter in front of his 60,000 followers so he could retweet this podcast. That's the fifth time I've asked him to do that. <laughs> anyway, guys, I look forward to bringing him on for the next chapter of this story, which is him playing with the Minnesota Twins and how crazy that was. Uh, it's going to be good stuff. We have it all done our homework on this. I'm pretty sure you're going to like it. Be sure and spread this one out there to people. We're pretty slow in sports right now, and I think this is really interesting what we're doing here, talking to the champ, getting him to open up a little bit. It's been years since he spoke to anyone let alone the podcast or the media or what have you. But once again, thanks for joining the Sports Antelope, and we will see you soon.